I'm Robert Polly, and it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. Online at 7thAvenueProject.com. She's inspirational on many levels in terms of scholarship, in terms of writing, in terms of teaching. But on a more personal level, it was a kind of love. Women writers were absolutely at the margin at best. I think Tilly, though obviously not single-handedly, but in a very important way, changed that. I read her and read her and read her. I copy the sentences down. It's the beauty of the sentences, her ability to take in so much of the world lyrically. I read one page from Tell Me a Riddle, and I burst into tears, and it never happened to me in my life. She had this capacity to embrace other people in a way that is so extraordinary and very rare. An amazing mother, an enduring community activist, you know, a great teacher, and for certain, uh, one of the great American writers of the 20th century. When I saw her on those stairs the first time I saw her, I knew she was someone. She had a, a special luminous quality about her. And I wondered, who was that woman? <laughs> That woman was the writer and human rights activist Tilly Olson, remembered there by her fellow writers and friends Janet Zandi, Barry O'Connell, Mary Gordon, T. Mike Walker, Scott Turow, and Maud Meehan. That was from a radio piece uh, I produced in 2007, a little after Tilly Olson's death. Tilly Olson had a big influence on a lot of writers and readers. After her works first came to widespread attention back in the 1960s and 70s, though uh, she is not as well-known today as she might otherwise be. I think uh, that's because her published output was pretty slim, and most of the work that she did publish was in the form of short stories, which don't tend to get noticed as much as novels. But uh, what she lacked in quantity, she made up for in quality. Nearly everything that Tilly published won literary awards and rave reviews. Her work was widely anthologized, taught in lit programs, and uh, generally seen as the sort of writing that would last for generations. So it was a little shocking to me when I found out uh, that her signature collection, Tell Me a Riddle and Other Stories, had gone out of print in recent years. Well, fortunately, uh, that situation has since been rectified by the University of Nebraska Press, uh, which came out last year with a book that gathers some of Tilly's best love stories along with some lesser-known pieces, um, such as reporting and essays from the 1930s through 1990s. The release of the book, uh, which is called Tell Me a Riddle, Requa One, and Other Works, gave me a chance to reacquaint myself with Tilly's writing, and also to learn a little more about her remarkable life. And also uh, to get together and discuss those subjects with her daughter, the writer and teacher Julie Olson Edwards, and her granddaughter, the poet and teacher, Rebecca Edwards. We sat down for a conversation, and uh, you're going to hear that today on the show. By the way, the first voice you're going to hear is uh, Julie Olson Edwards, and then later Rebecca Edwards is going to join in. And uh, we started by talking about just how much it would have meant to Tilly Olson to see her works republished. Because uh, as her daughter Lori Olson writes in the foreword to this new book, for Tilly, out-of-print literature was a loss for readers and a kind of death for a writer. She often talked about the contract between the writer and the reader. 
and that the work wasn't completed until it was read, and how important readers were to her. She took time with readers every chance she had. Uh, it uh, was a joke in our family and everybody who was with her that when she did public readings and afterwards people would come up for autographs, that instead of writing, you know, thank you, Tilly Olson, something, every single person she'd stop and say, tell me about yourself. What was important in this? What are you trying to do? And she would write these really personal autographs about them and who they were. Uh, and she would take their hands and look at them, you know. And, it, you know, getting her out afterwards, you know, two in the morning, you're dragging her away <laughs> because she's talking to every reader. They mattered to her. Your sister Lori wrote in the foreword to the book, um, If Tilly were alive, she would reach for your hand and hold it, touch your shoulder, fixing her eyes on your face. She would want to know about you. And in careful listening, Tilly would urge you to write, to bring to literature what is not there now, to see the lapses and gaps in what makes it into literature and to add your own story and voice to written form. Um, you guys probably don't know this. I mean, I met Tilly mm-hmm. long ago. I was babysitting or house-sitting her apartment <laughs> uh, in San Francisco, and she did exactly that with me. She asked me what I did. As it happens, I told her that I was a kind of writer manquet and a lapsed journalist and that I was working an office job and really had no time to write and maybe didn't have it in me to do anything. <laughs> I didn't even realize that I was talking to one of the, the central subjects of her own writing. Right. Um, the difficulty of writing and difficulty of balancing um, that kind of artist's life with all the demands of the, the uh, financial and working world, uh, which was the, her struggle throughout her life. One of her books that fed into her acclaim, and the timing of which was so critical in the United States, was her book Silences, which is a book of her essays on exactly that subject. How is it that people are silenced? What gets in the way of people being able to write? What are the issues of economic class, of gender, of of race, of the impossibility of life that silences these great gifts in people and keeps them from happening. And these essays, most of which started out as talks, they exploded into a time in the United States when people were so hungry for this kind of analysis. And many of these essays became the basis of a lot of the critical studies in feminist studies and American studies and literature about what stops the flowering of human beings, what stops our create the creative processes. Yeah, and at the same time in, in uh, academic literature study, uh, you know, the big subject was what canonical literature excludes, all the voices right. that aren't there, all the people that aren't there, uh, the other who is on the margins and all of that stuff. So yeah, the timing was amazing of that book. Um, Tilly is one of those American writers who right out of the gate created some classic works. Mm-hmm. And then sort of stopped or, or went by fits and starts. I mean, you think of Ralph Ellison with his one great book, Invisible Man. Think of Tilly Olson with the collected works in Tell Me a Riddle. Maybe you think of Henry Roth with Call It Sleep. But a handful of writers from whom people wanted so much more, and it didn't always come. With Tilly, I know that in her early decades, it was the struggle with the you know hard, low-paid jobs, the raising of multiple children, including you, Julie. <laughs> but later on, was there something else stopping her? Well, I, could I? Yeah, go? Rebecca, your so, turn, your turn. <laughs> one of the things that I think is tricky 
is to imagine that she stopped writing. She stopped publishing, but she didn't stop writing. There are thousands of scraps of paper that she was practicing her writing on that she was doing in odd moments late at night or during the day. And and people have different opinions about this. But for me, one of the things that I, I always want to sort of put into that conversation is to say, let's be really clear here. It, there's a difference between not writing and not publishing. Yeah. Uh, I know what you're talking about with the scraps of papers, because again, when I did the, the apartment sitting, I saw those little <laughs> torn pieces of paper inscribed with tiny lettering uh, <laughs> with these beautiful, often beautiful, little epigrammatic sentences. Some of them captured bits of dialogue, speech, thoughts, shards of, of observation stacked in shoeboxes. And of course, I snuck a peek. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> Didn't. <laughs> um, and, and, and Rebecca, I'm glad you said that because, uh, you know, thinking about Tilly's career and, and the careers of these other writers, they give people something great and then people demand more and they demand more in published form. And it's as if, if you aren't producing in the way we want you to, you're not valid anymore. You know, <laughs> what is this? Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, she continued to write, speak, and contribute in all kinds of ways. Why does it have to be published? Why does it have to be a novel, for instance? Why can't it be fragments? In fact, silence is, is in a way fragments, right? It's yes, not it one book written from beginning to end. That's right. It was based on she would do these talks, and it was always an astonishing thing because she would walk in, she would have little file cards so was, uh, showing you with my hands, uh, five by three, whatever that small size file card is, um, and she would have them filled with quotes that she'd typed out or written out from all sorts. So she was an incredible reader. I've never known anybody who had read as much as she has. She read constantly and deeply. And she'd have all these quotes, and she'd have her notes. And she'd stand in front of these audiences of hundreds and hundreds of people and sort of shuffle these notes around talking about the critical issues. And it was an astounding thing to watch as someone who's done public lecturing. I mean, I have a very careful outline I'm following <laughs> to know where the beginning, the middle, and the end is. It was astounding. And that's really what Silences is based on, are this series of talks she did over a period of, I think, about eight or nine years. And she continued after the period when she was not being published, when her, there was not new published work coming out. She continued to be a speaker, a mentor, and kept up this voluminous correspondence with just about every major writer of the late 20th century, um, as well as with every reader who wrote to her. I mean, she was continually answering these letters, encouraging people to write, to get get their stories out. Did it pain her, though, um, given the culture of uh, literary production in this country, where if you don't produce yet another work, you are considered a former writer, a, um, <laughs> a blocked writer, uh, you know, uh, a non-productive writer? Was that torment for her? Was that difficult? There were several books she was trying to write through the last 20 years of her life. She was putting a book together about death, uh, different writers, her own thinking. Um, it was not fiction. She was putting together a number of things that she really wanted to complete. Writing did not come easily to her. I mean, words did not flow off of her pen. The words had to be right. It's much more like poetry than prose. 
You know, every word had to be right. It was a a joke ran that every time she would get page proofs for the story, Tell Me a Riddle, each time it would get republished, it'd send her the, she would be rewriting in the margins instead of just correcting. And someday I hope somebody gets all the versions of it and lays them out and compares them because it kept changing. I think she both felt that she was one of the lucky people who had found an audience who'd been able to write and also felt uh, incredible frustration, both at her kind of inability to finish up these pieces she was working on. But she continued. She wrote a piece for Newsweek that was published later. She um, did the mother-to-daughter book. There were other things that happened. And she was aging, you know? Uh, None of this is easier as you get older. Mm. Well, I have have deep sympathy with um, artists who continue to work uh, but don't uh, come forth with fully complete finished pieces. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people out there, some of them among our greatest artists. Another one I'd add to that list I said earlier was Orson Welles, who was thought to be a has-been, creating a masterpiece right from the Mm -hmm. beginning with uh, Citizen Kane and then struggling for years to create uh, Mm -hmm. another movie. Um, You know, he had a few more, but uh, in the end, a lot of people wrote him off because he wasn't continually coming out with new work. Um, Speaking of uh, incomplete pieces, and, and Tilly had a number of them, one of them is collected in this recent book, Tell Me a Riddle, Requa One, and other works, Requa One is a fragment of what was going to be a novel, right? Um, There were supposed to be three parts of Requa, and the second part was in full manuscript, and it has been lost. We don't know where it went to. Um, But the first part was published in uh, the Iowa Review first, and then in 1970. Won. won the Editor's Prize, I believe, yeah, for that Best American Short Stories. Um, it's an extraordinary piece to read, both on its own and understanding that it's a, there's a trajectory that never happened um, or that we don't get access to because the piece itself is about fragmentation and healing and becoming whole out of the fragment, finding a way back to strength and some kind of subjecthood through brokenness and through community and those two things. Let's explain that it's the story of a kid, an orphaned boy. His mom has just died. Uh, His uncle Wes, he's named Stevie, his uncle Wes is taking him to a town in Northern California, Requa, right? Requa. And this kid is shattered. And the writing captures that experience of being psychologically shattered. And and Rebecca, I'd like you to to read a passage from it. Sure. Um, The point of view in the story switches back and forth between Wes, inside Wes's head some of the time, and Stevie. And Stevie has been completely shattered. And so what we get when we are inside Stevie's head is quite fragmented and emotional. so this is a section in Requa where Stevie has has refused to go to school and has asked Wes to go to work with Wes. And Wes works at a gas station and a, at a junk heap. And he puts this kid to work sorting things in the junk heap. This paragraph itself switches back and forth between Wes and Stevie's consciousness in ways that are very hard to track. I'll try to do justice. I'll read it and then talk about it. But the known is reaching to him, stealthily, secretly reclaiming. Sharp wind breath fresh from the sea, skies that are all seasons in one day, fog, 
rain, known weather of his former life. Disorder twinning with order, the discarded, the broken, the torn from the whole, weather-beaten. Weather-beaten, moldering or waiting for use need. Broken existences that yet continue. Hasps, switches, screws, plugs, tubings, drills, valves, pistons, shears, planes, punchers, sieves, clamps, sprockets, coils, bits, braces, dies. How many shapes and sizes, how various, how cunning an application. Human mastery, human skill, hard, defined, enduring, they pass through his hands, linked to his city life of man-made marvel. Wes, junking a towed car in, 100 pieces out of what had been won, singing, unconscious, forceful, to match the motor hum as he machines a new edge, rethreads a pipe, capable, fumbling, exasperated, patient, demanding, easy, uncomprehending, quick, harsh, gentle, concerned with him, the recognizable human bond, the habitable known, stealthily, secretly reclaiming, the dead things pulling him into attention, consciousness, the tasks coaxing him with trustworthiness, pliancy, doing as he bids, having to hold up. And, and why did you pick that passage? Um, one of the reasons I picked this passage is that the way it takes up the page, um, the way the text takes up the page. So unlike a block of prose that you might expect in a novel, the words on this page are placed in some parts of the paragraph as if it was poetry. Mm -hmm. So the list, rather than being a list with commas, has tab spaces in between them. So each of the words stand on their own in a long line rather than being linked. Um, that you're inside Stevie's head. One of the other things that you can't hear <laughs> is that it moves back and forth between italics and um, standard text so that you can mark what might be Stevie's thoughts or what might be Stevie's language versus Stevie's experience. I love the way the piece reads as poetry but is doing the work of prose. I think I'll add to that with another bit that has some other kind of vocal qualities in it. Leaky, appraising eyes. Sure, why not? Favor to you, Wes. Anything he gets done, we're that much ahead. But if he's in the way or it don't work out, that's it. And he's your headache. Anybody stick their nose in, he's helping you, not working for me. Don't get him expecting anything for the piggy bank either. Use stock sometimes, maybe, whatever I think it's worth and he's worth. Catch, tumble of buildings and sheds, stockpiles and junk, a block from the bridge, sprawled in the crotch between 101 going north-south and the short crooked upriver road to game and Indian country. Landscape of thing hillocks and mounds innumerable. Which shed is which? The wind blows so. Too close. Scaly, rapid river. Too close. Dwarfing, encircling, dark, massive forest rise. Wow. I mean, I didn't uh, slow down and take it um, as beautifully um, spaced out as you did, Rebecca, because there's also this torrent, you know. It just comes. Yeah. And, and it's like, I mean, this isn't the only work where Tilly was deep inside of someone else's consciousness or multiple consciousnesses. And instead of, you know, taking the position of an omniscient narrator, an outsider looking from on high, trying to tell you what is, 
She's inside telling you what it feels like to be someone else, you know? Where did that come from? I like, I like to ask impossible answer <laughs> questions. <laughs> but there's this drive in her to get inside the consciousness of other people and to get it on the page that's um, just ferocious. And that's true throughout her work, although in Requa, of all of them, which was the most recent of her fiction work, um, I think it, it hit a level of mastery that is stunning. I mean, the language in it. I'm looking at one line in the middle of this where um, Stevie sees someone's swollen feet, and suddenly you have in parens, blue swollen veining. Are you tired, Ma? Tired to death, love. This is his dying mother still in his head, you know, or this mm. little boy has been caring for her. Mm. And that kind of just in one line suddenly you're transported to a whole other place inside this child and inside this mother who is dying, you know. Uh, it was more than empathy. It was a capacity and a caring to experience from the place of the person she was thinking about. I also think there's something to say about her craft in that moment. Um, Tilly was an amazing collector of vernacular, of mm -hmm. how people talked. Mm -hmm. and, and part of the many scraps of papers that you would see would be phrases she had written down from overhearing people speak and from trying to get that speech right and forget that speech in public. Part of what the stories in Tell Me a Riddle did was bring in a whole kind of um, culture through language, through the vernacular of the waterfront that had not been represented in literature or from the culture of any of the places she was writing from. In Requel, one of the things that is challenging about the piece and thrilling about the piece is she's using um, a vernacular not just from the 1930s, but from a small Northern California logging community, you know. And so the language is specific to that time and place and in a way that you get a sense of these people and how they're thinking and feeling through a use of language that um, is accurate and precise and, and gorgeous. Mm. It's a difficult, challenging work because it does skip uh, among so many uh, points of view, voices, characters. Um, sometimes you're not sure who yes. those words belong to. But, you know, I just went with it. And instead of trying to figure it all out, just read. And it has a cumulative effect. Don't try to grasp every phrase. At least I couldn't. <laughs> uh, but go with it. Get in the stream. And you will begin to get a sense of being there. One of my experiences, I didn't read this until um, just a few years ago, actually. I didn't. I had never read it before we were getting it ready for the anthology, before Julie was getting doing all the careful uh, typos and, and checking of the manuscripts next to each other. And um, I was completely thrown by this piece. I think it's one of the most amazing pieces of writing I've ever, ever come across. And one of the things that happened for me when I let myself go was it started to feel like it wasn't just the point of view of Wes or of Stevie or one of the other people in the rooming house that they're living in in this community, but it started to feel like the point of view of the place was coming through. Ah, there you go. Mm. And I 
went back at a certain point to see, can I trace where, where, because I was sure, I was sure that I had the point of view of the redwoods or the moisture <laughs> or the something. And I went back to check and see, is it actually written from the point of view of the place? And discovered that it is the collective um, impression of the way the language is moving back and forth from point of view and description that makes you feel like Reco itself is talking. Yeah, well, there's this mosaic quality um, and, you know, or pointillist quality where you, you know, as you're looking at a, a painting or a mosaic, the energy of, of assembling all the pieces is, is in itself energizing for an audience. You know, it adds some dimension when you have to work to assemble things. And she did that. She made the reader really work, but not in a kind of, well, I want to say she made us work, but she made us work in a way that's pleasurable. I think it makes you work in the sense of it draws you in and you have to give yourself to the work. It's not like you have to sit there and analyze while you read. Right. You don't need to say, now, is this the tree or is this the truck or is this Wes? You don't need to do any of that. But you have to give yourself to the work and it pulls you so that the whole, uh, the whole um, conjunction comes together. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about the language. One of my favorite of her stories that is probably her least read story of all is Hey Sailor, What Ship? It's a powerful, powerful piece. And again, this capacity to use language that is less and less here. I mean, it's language that's disappearing. The language of the waterfront, the language of the sailors who shipped out, of the 30s warehousemen. Um, and you get caught in the language itself and transplaced, not transplaced. Transported. Right, transported, thank you. <laughs> and transported to a time and place in a particular city just through the quality of the way the language is laid out for you. Um, so this was a story that was published in 1956? Mm, I'm not sure. I'd have to look that up. Early, mid-50s. Called it's, Hey Sailor, What Ship? It's part of that collection. That, uh, tell Me a Riddle Tell collection. Me a Riddle collection. It's about a merchant marine, a guy who is pretty worn out, strung out, uh, alcoholic, you know, uh, three sheets to the wind. <laughs> and his, you know, his sad predicament, but he's going to visit some people, uh, some old friends who are kind of in the absence of his actual family, um, you know, his adopted family. And it's really poignant. This guy is in bad shape. Want to read a little bit? And okay. what's his name again? His name is Whitey. Whitey. And uh, he's come off the ship, again gone on a binge. Eventually he makes it to the house of this family who are, is his family now. And so he gets there after all. Four days and everything else too late. It's an old peaked house on a hill, and he's imagined and entered it over and over again in a thousand various places, a thousand various times, on watch and over chow, lying on his bunk or breezing with the guys, from sidewalk beds and doorway shelters, in flop houses and jails, sitting silent at union meetings or waiting in the places one waits, or listening to the Come to Jesus boys. The stairs are innumerable and he barely makes it to the top. Helen, Helen, so grade, K 
Carol Alley surging upon him, a fever of hugging and kissing. It's about time, Whitey, it's about time, shrills Carol over and over again. It's about time. You know, uh, there's also passages that are some of the best drunk writing, <laughs> uh, right up there with Under the Volcano um, by Malcolm Lowry, where Whitey is, you know, again, pretty blitzed in a bar, and mm-hmm. his thoughts are coming <laughs> pretty ragged. <laughs> But did Tilly have to go get drunk to write that stuff? (laughs) (laughs) No. Everyone in her stories is based on real people. But I think the most uh, specific description of a particular person is probably Whitey. There really was a Whitey in our life. Um, There were many Whiteys. But of all of her her characters, Whitey is probably the most biographic <laughs> kind of story. He, he was a guy that you as a family took care of? He had he was... been one of my parents' closest comrades during the 30s. He was shipped out with the maritime workers. My dad organized on the waterfront. Uh, they were incredibly close. And they saw themselves as comrades in the battle to bring about a good world. You know, they were both union people. He was a merchant marine. Um, I always guessed he was a little in love with my mother. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, But every time he came to shore, he'd come to our house with gifts for us kids. And there's a wonderful line at the end where he, where in that story where uh, talks to Helen, a helping hand. He, when he came, he always, he'd wash floors. He'd get dishes done. And, you know, my mother was working full-time, had four kids, and life was, it was hard. And he was this very important person to both of my parents. And he became an alcoholic. And as the conditions got worse and worse on the waterfront and for the mariners, he slowly disintegrated. And our family was the one place he had home, really. Uh, the, the story is dedicated to him, to Whitey Gleason, I believe. Actually, uh, Jack Egan. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Who I'm named after. That's um, Whitey. Wait, how's that? <laughs> Jack Egan, Egan was called Jack the Clipper. Um, he was actually called, his real name was Julius Egan. And when oh, I was Julie. born, he died on the retreat from the Ebro in the Spanish Civil War. He and my father were both signing up together, as was Whitey. In the Lincoln Brigade? In the Lincoln Brigade. Wow. The three of them were going to go together. Whitey ended up having to ship out and decided he could work on the shipping, trying to get supplies through to Spain. My mother was pregnant with me, and Dad decided not to go. So Julius, called Jack, um, went for my father and Whitey as well. And then he was killed about a month before I was born. And I was first named Jackie after him. That's what it says on my birth certificate. But uh, it was too much like my dad's name, Jack. So they switched it to Julie because his real name was Julius. And um, so that's where my name comes from, is from Jack Egan. But it was Whitey and my dad and Jack Egan they were this very tight group who were willing to give their lives, if necessary, to try to stop fascism. Your parents met uh, about the time they were jailed together, is that right? <laughs> Pretty close. During the time, Mom came out here from the Midwest with Carla, who was probably about four at the time. That's your oldest it's sister. my eldest sister. And uh, your mom, uh, we should give a little history. Born in Nebraska of... Mm-hmm. Russian Jewish parents right. who had fled 
Russia after mm-hmm. being involved or at least supporting the abortive right. 1905 revolution Correct. against the Tsar. Both of them jailed. My grandmother actually sent to Siberia. My grandfather in jail in St. Petersburg. But they came here, settled in Wahoo, Nebraska, where they tried to farm and uh, lived in really abject poverty. And my grandfather started working and became a house painter, was active in the socialist movement in Nebraska, which was very much a farmer's movement at that point, and had six children. Eventually moved to Omaha, where they lived in a black neighborhood. where it was cheap enough to live. And some of one of my mother's best stories, uh, Oh Yes, which has in it a whole thing about <laughs> a baptism. Save that, okay? okay. <laughs> Anyhow, but it came from that part of her life. Right, uh, wow. Or at wow. least in part from that. Um, but uh, she was, you know, daughter of revolutionaries. Right. And yeah. she was from the get-go herself a diehard activist, social reformer. Mm-hmm. Right. And she le- had to leave high school. She could not finish high school. There wasn't enough money. She needed to work. Went to work. Hmm. How did she end up in Minneapolis? I think she was working in a factory and met uh, Carla's father. They were a couple and gave birth to my sister. Her first husband. Her first husband. I don't know that she married him. She didn't marry Were they legally married? Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Thanks, <laughs> Rebecca. Uh, I know she didn't legally marry my father until after Kathy and I had been born. They, uh-huh. they didn't believe in marriage. Right. The state has nothing to say about these things. It's right. between two individual people. Where have we heard this? They're radicals. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, when that relationship came apart, she came west. Um, one point came west and was helping organize farm workers up in Stockton when Carla was very tiny, and then came west again and met my father, who was organizing on the waterfront in San Francisco. And uh, she became involved in that longshoreman's uh, labor movement, protesting for better wages and better working conditions? Well, it was more than that, um, because what happened is they were trying to organize the waterfront, and it was a bitter brutal struggle, which she writes about in the book here. And in that process, she met my father, and she was writing for the newsletter and the newspaper of the union, the newsletters that went out. She did writing for that. She wrote for new masses, for a number of things. She tried to tell the story of the strikers during that period. So she was working as a writer. She was also just holding down a regular job. I've forgotten which one that one was. Um, and you've got something you want to read from right there. Well, yeah, I was, you, you were setting me up perfectly because I did want to read uh, a bit from this, um, well, some people would call it reportage uh, that she filed uh, during that strike, um, that longshoreman strike, after what was called Bloody Thursday, when demonstrators were shot at and some killed by police. Correct. Um, and uh, by the way, just remind uh, listeners that this new book, recent book, Tell Me a Riddle, Requa One, and other works uh, of Tilly Olson not only brought back into print her classic short stories, but collects a number of other writings, like that fragment of Requa One that Rebecca was reading from earlier, and um, also uh, some bits of uh, journalism and essay writing and so on. Some going all the way back to the 30s, like this one called The Strike from uh, 1934, right? Right. So this is a piece, you know, she publishes a journalist, but the, uh, the opening is so striking No pun was really intended there. (laughs) Uh, I wanted to read it. Do not ask me to write of the strike and the terror. I am on a battlefield, and the increasing stench and smoke sting the eyes, so it is impossible to turn them back into the past. 
You leave me only this night to drop the bloody garment of today's, to cleave through the gigantic events that have crashed one upon the other to the first beginning. If I could go away for a while, if there were time and quiet, perhaps I could do it. All that has happened might resolve into order and sequence, fall into neat patterns of words. I could stumble back into the past and slowly, painfully rear the structure in all its towering magnificence so that the beauty and the heroism, the terror and significance of those days would enter your heart and sear it forever with the vision. Um, so it, it, she's she's both telling us sort of what happened, but also telling us that she can't really tell us what happened. She's telling us about the limits of standard journalism right then and there, and the fact that that straight-laced language and that distant style isn't enough to contain the emotion she felt at that time. There was an article uh, about six weeks ago in The New Yorker called yes. About Writers, yes. about Tilly's writing this piece, which talks about the writer as living through a history and the responsibility, and how do you tell that story? It was a wonderful little article. And may I read something from the end of that same sure, article? Sure, sure. Because here, the poet and her again. This is after, in that terrible strike, when and when the two men were killed, there was a call for a general strike, and they closed down San Francisco. The whole city closed down. And among the things in the general strike, there was a funeral march up Market Street. No bands, no music, just Market Street filled with people marching behind these caskets. It was a real turning point in the American labor movement. And uh, she says here, There was a pregnant woman standing on the corner, outlined against the sky, and she might have been a marble rigid, eternal, expressing some vast and nameless sorrow. But her face was aflame, and I heard her say after a while, dispassionately, as if it had been said so many times no accent was needed, we'll not forget that. We'll pay it back someday. And on every square of sidewalk, a man was saying, we'll have it. We'll have a general strike, and there won't be processions to bury their dead. Murder, to save themselves paying a few pennies more wages. Remember that, Johnny. We'll change it. It won't be long. General strike. Listen, it is late. I am feverish and tired. Forgive me that the words are feverish and blurred. You see, if I had time, if I could go away, but I write this on a battlefield. Do you guys know the Neruda poem, um... I'm explaining a few things. Mm -hmm. I love that poem. That instantly, when I, the first paragraph, the one I read of uh, Tilly's piece from 1934, instantly reminded me of Neruda's poem where he, he's talking about a fascist attack on a neighborhood in um, Madrid during the Spanish Civil War. And he explains, one of the things he explains is why he's not going to write beautiful poetry. And it ends with a scream repeated mm -hmm. three times, come and see the blood in the streets. And again, it's this idea of these events are too big for your standard language, you know, mm -hmm. and for your nice treatment. And it, it, even though his was written four years after Tilly's piece, I feel like right. there's a real fellowship there. Well, and one of the things I love about the strike also is that attempt to um, not only convey the impossibility of conveying what is going on, the horror of it, but one of the things that happens in the strike is that Tilly uses headlines from the 
popular press. So it was owned by um, the bosses of the city, right, and the the big the big money of San Francisco. And she puts the headlines in and then talks back to them. Um, a refrain of one that's dead, law and order, law and order must prevail. Um, the headline, law and order must prevail. And one of the things she does is juxtapose the headline with um, a description of the crowd. And so the paragraph I would have read from the strike is the one that starts, law and order. People watching with horror, trying to comprehend the lesson the moving bodies were writing. The man stopping me on the corner, seeing my angry tears as I read the paper. Listen, he said, and he talked because he had to talk, because an hour all beliefs in his life had been riddled and torn away. Listen, I was down there on the waterfront. Do you know what they're doing? They were shooting, shooting, and that word came out anguished and separate, shooting right into men. Human beings, they were shooting into them as if they were animals, as if they were targets, just lifting their guns and shooting. I saw this. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? As if they were targets, as if, can you believe it? And he went to the next man and started it all over again. Mm. And it's that same kind of tactic of what do you do when you're on the front lines to write into a dominant description of what's happening and the, the sort of the only way to do it is to try to convey the voice of the people who are right there in that moment yeah yeah and to forget the idea of distance and um so-called objectivity you know <laughs> which is part of the point well, made in that uh, that new yorker piece that, and i think I think that's also the point of putting the headline from the mainstream journalism out there that is supposed to be the objective right language, right? And so by saying, they're saying that they're objective reporting and what I'm doing is not objective reporting. And yet, when you show that what their headline is, is law and order, and then you have the voice of the person who's saying, actually, the policemen were shooting into an unarmed crowd of men. How is that law and order? Who's objective here, right? You know, um, for me, it's been a great experience to get a chance to reread Tilly's work and to read some works that I'd never read before because they've been collected for the first time in this book. Again, the name of it is Tell Me a Riddle, Requa One, and other works um, came out last year from University of Nebraska Press. Um, and one of, the th one of the stories, believe it or not, I'd, I'd had the collection, Tell Me a Riddle, and uh, it's one story just sitting there that I had skipped the first time. Uh, I I admit it, I skipped it, and I finally <laughs> read it. Oh, yes. What a remarkable story, especially considering when it was written. Uh, 1956 was when it was published. It's about a, a friendship between two kids, black and white. And uh, the two kids have drifted apart, partly because of the sorting process that happens in junior high, partly because of race in America. And you can see the writing on the wall, the black girl is probably going to lead a hard life. She's already being tracked away from academic pursuits and sent down one path while the white girl is going to a nice school and being treated well. And her mom sees this and sees the sadness of it all. And she's talking to her girl uh, and saying, well, there's a passage I'd like to read at the very end. Um, <laughs> let me see if I can find it here. I can do it by heart. <laughs> really? I can too. Right. You guys can do it by heart? Yep. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, then let me just put the book down and let you do it instead. Mother, why does it hurt so much? And why do I have to care? Mother, I want to forget about it like Melanie. 
Why can't I forget? Caressing, quieting, thinking. Caring asks doing. It is a long baptism into the seas of humankind, my daughter. Better immersion than to live untouched. Yet how will you sustain? Why is it like it is? Sheltering her daughter close, mourning the illusion of the embrace. And why do I have to care? While in her, her own need leapt and plunged for the place of strength that was not, where one could scream or sorrow while all knew and accepted, and gloved and loving hands waited to support and understand. The lines, caring, ask, doing, it is a long baptism into the seas of humankind, my daughter, yet how better immersion than to live untouched, yet how will you sustain? I've had those up on my board above my desk for the last 40 years. And they are my mother's words. I mean, that to me is <laughs> both her incredible compassion and direction, both. And I want to say that, you know, before that moment of, of sort of clear moral instruction uh, that could come off as preachy, perhaps, or at least as polemical, um, there is a very specific story full of incredible detail about a trip by this white girl with her a black friend uh, who's being baptized to a black church and of a church sermon and a ceremony. The white girl doesn't know what to do with it. The intensity is just too much for her. And uh, there's a sense that this is a breaking point for her where the two girls begin to go their separate ways. Um, Tilly couldn't have just imagined that. She, she, she must have had some experiences. Mom spent her Omaha years living in an almost all black neighborhood. Uh, it was the poor part of town in Omaha, uh, it was a, which was a city that literally had tracks dividing the city, and she was on the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, and she would sit outside the black churches on Sundays listening to the music, uh, which she loved. And the women going in would invite her in, and she wouldn't go, um, having not yet figured out whether she could, what it meant for a little Jewish girl to go into a black church. Um, but she loved the music, and she loved her neighbors. Um, and in her adult life, she frequently went with friends of hers who were African-American to various church services where she was invited as part of their extended clan and family. She knew that the rhythm of it, the feel of it, her being able to put into words what that church sounded like is amazing to me. And her sense, um, there's a line in here where she She's, she tries to explain to her daughter what this emotion is about, what is going on, and is unable to put into words all the history, everything that leads to this kind of deep need and expression of care that can happen in, these, in the church. Uh, it's a beautiful piece. It's, her story, I Stand Here Ironing, has been anthologized in more high school textbooks than I care to count, and I'm convinced it's the wrong story. Mm. That's a story for mothers. It's a story for adults. It is not a story for teenagers. Mm. The one I wish that was in there is Oh Yes, which talks with such power about the sorting process of how kids get shoved away from each other, how the way they're dressed becomes the clue, how you must choose 
you have to be on one side or the other, that pressure on kids. Um, and to capture that in a 20-page short story is pretty astounding. And to have done it in 1956 is even mm -hmm. more astounding. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, Rebecca and uh, Julie, I, I can read these works and reread them because she's the kind of writer you could reread again and again. I just have a hard time imagining what it must be like to have known her as well as you did, to be related to her and to read these words. That must be a different experience from what I, I'm having. Um, I suspect it's very different for Julie than it would be for me. For me, um, I'm, I so love her writing that it, it's a pleasure, and I, I miss her when I read her writing, but I have a sense of her as the writer, and there's a distance in a way between the figure of my grandmother and the writer who I, whose work I admire so tremendously. And I was thinking about that this this summer I went to the Radcliffe Institute. I was looking at their files, and one of my cousins was there, and we saw that Tilly's name showed up in June Jordan's papers, so we called the file up to see what it was that was in June Jordan's papers, and it was a birthday card to June Jordan on a little piece of paper in Tilly's handwriting. And we both read it and started to cry because her handwriting the way she framed that birthday greeting, which is the way she framed everybody's birthday greeting, except every single greeting was completely specific to the person she was writing it to. That was the grandmother I miss. When I read Tilly's works, I am in the presence of a extraordinary author who I admire so greatly, and it's a very different feeling. So I think it's different for Julie. I'm not sure it's so different. Mm -hmm. The fiction picks me up and carries me, and it's the writer who's doing that. Even when I know pieces from where it came, like I remember Whitey so clearly from Hey Sailor, What Ship. Reading the fiction, I'm caught up in the artistry. I'm caught up in these incre this incredible thing that literature does for you, which moves you into another world. The nonfiction, when I read her nonfiction, I'm much more conscious of Tilly, of uh, my mother, of the person I knew all my life, who shaped so much of who I am, who still shapes so much of who I am. Um, in the nonfiction, it's the ideas, and the ideas are so like my mother, because <laughs> I come from her. So it's different depending on what I'm reading. We haven't talked about Yonandio, but I get into Yonandio, and although I've read it, Many, many times, I literally cannot put it down. I'll be up till three in the morning with my eyes hurting, and I cannot put Yonandio, her novel, down. And it has nothing to do with Tilly for me. I'm caught in a story that is so powerful and so rich, and it's one of those great works of literature. Um, so I think for, for listeners who are unfamiliar with Tilly Olson. Uh, we've painted a picture of someone who was a dedicated writer, but also a dedicated activist, um, you know, committed body and soul. That could be a person who's pretty stern, a person <laughs> who's pretty hard-edged, a person who maybe is committed to causes and to artistic greatness. But how was she <laughs> as, as a mom and a grandmother? <laughs> Since I've got you two here, I might as well ask that. Um, 
Yes, she carried little copies of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in her pocket and handed them out to everybody. And yes, she carried bubbles with her everywhere and blue bubbles. She was funny, the life of a party, in love with the natural world. We lived in San Francisco, and we'd have blackouts every night during the war. We'd go up on the roof, and she'd show us all the constellations and tell us the stories of the constellations. Um, She loved the ocean. She loved redwood trees. I mean, she was in love with the natural world. Uh, She loved to dance uh, and sing. I was embarrassed when I was a young girl trying to be proper, and she liked rhythm and blues, which was, you know, in the early 50s with scandalous music. Um, And she loved it and um, taught me to love it and taught me to love the old... role reversal there, (laughs) Yeah, taught me to love country western, the old country western music that was looked down upon by everybody else. She loved to sing, never had a music lesson, but she could play chords on a piano and would chord out music. Um, She's a terrific cook. So not the kind of intimidating, you know, sort of overshadowing presence that a great person might have been. One of my favorite memories of Tilly from towards the end of her life, I was over at her house. Uh, This was when she was living in Berkeley. And there were two people who were coming to interview her. I think they were young graduate students, young graduate students coming to meet the great Tilly Olson. And she had been getting ready for them, but also we had been talking, and I'm not quite sure why these things were laying around, but she put on a blue feather boa and one of those um, head pieces that had like eyeballs on on rubber band things that bounce around. Those things were called dealy boppers. Dealy boppers. (laughs) So there was a dealy bopper lying around that she happened to put on her head, and then there was a blue (laughs) feather boa that she happened to put around her neck. And so when she... When the door, when they knocked on the door, she was wearing those things. So she opened the door to say hello, and the look of, on their faces of these two young, <laughs> earnest people coming to meet the great author who met them in a blue feather boa and with thingies on her head was hysterical. And she just carried it off. Just you know, that's <laughs> who Tilly was. And you two both are writers. Um, Again, you know, one classic story would be the daughter and granddaughter of an acknowledged great writer. At least she was in her later years, right? It took a long time, but she got recognition. Might be pretty much scared off or otherwise um, put off attempting to do anything in the same field. Didn't happen to you guys. (laughs) 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 Or did it? Was there a struggle? Sure. Um... But not from her. It's a struggle, I think, that all beginning writers have or people trying to find their voice in writing where you read brilliant, beautiful work and your work just isn't there. And then it's multiplied because people know you are the daughter. So it's a double whammy. And in fact, I never write fiction and I have never shown anybody a piece of poetry I've written. I write textbooks. (laughs) I write books of nonfiction. I write books for parents. Um, But from her, she always encouraged any kind of writing I ever did, always. And um, I never felt anything but support from her. And I was very lucky because she was not a famous person in my childhood. 
So I was able to grow into adulthood without a famous mother. Actually, the famous person was my father. I was Jack's daughter. Um, and my mother didn't become Tilly Olson until I was already a young mother raising kids, working full-time, going to school full-time, and trying to figure out what it meant to be a woman in the late 60s and early 70s with the rise of the women's movement. Um, and so for me, her coming into herself in her late 40s and 50s was wonderful. It was like, oh, here's my mom, my mommy, and she's doing this. She's doing this thing she has always wanted to do. So for me, um, certainly it has made me more conscious of that I'm a beginning writer when I try fiction or poetry. Um, but one of the things she used to always want writing teachers to do is she said they should give students the first works of famous mm. writers. They should see where people begin. They should have the thrown away manuscripts so that they can see that this is a craft as well as an art, and you learn the craft. So that's my answer. <laughs> and Rebecca, you became a poet. I, I did become a poet. And Tilly was one of the first people who named me a poet um, from a very, very early age. And uh, my first poem, or what she claimed was my first poem, hung on her bulletin board for actually to the end of her life. She carried that one with her. And there were times in my life where it was very hard to imagine myself to be a poet or a writer who is known to be Tilly's granddaughter. And part of that was my own awe of her work. Her craft was so extraordinary to me. The work she did was so beautiful that it felt impossible to do anything that was anywhere near that quality. And part of it was that unlike Julie, Tilly was the famous writer when I was growing up. And um, and in particular was quite well known in the 70s um, in various women's communities and political communities and here in Santa Cruz, which was where I was in the 70s, um, late 70s. Um, it was years before I let people know who I was taking writing workshops with or I was in school with or I was publishing with that Tilly was my grandmother. And that um, was very slow for me to let people know about. Hmm. I think that I had a teacher once when she found out who said, well, you know, you could think about it um, in the tradition of guilds, like your family is a guild of writers. And I thought, yeah, well, that is actually true. All of the daughters are beautiful writers. All of the grandkids have some kind of gift with language and use it in different ways. Um, my older cousin has four novels. I think she's written. I have written some poetry. Jesse writes music and um, incredibly talented, amazing music. And Jessica has written things. Lori, I mean, everybody has a gift of word. And I think that comes from a family that loves language and that part of that love of language came from Tilly. Rebecca, you mentioned music by your cousin, Jesse Olson Bay. Um, he put together a CD that came out earlier this year that uses um, the writing of Tilly that he found on these pieces of paper she called blueies because they were often blue, where she would scribble or type thoughts 
captured dialogue, bits of overheard uh, speech, pieces of her own prose. And Jesse has taken these, he was familiar with these, he's taken these and woven them into songs, uh, a whole cycle of which he released, like I say, on CD, a CD called Makings. And then, as I understand it, you have created pieces of um, poetry that play off of these songs. Is that right? Yes. Great. So I'd like to let our listeners hear a little bit of one of these songs. This one's called Fog. And uh, you you can explain why it's called Fog. So one of the things that is found throughout Tilly's Blueys is an opening line, which is a description of the fog. Um, clearly a way of starting writing, a basic writer's practice. How do you teach yourself? How do you start? You, you write about something. And so there is description after description after description of fog. So Jesse pulled those together into this piece. Okay. So an excerpt here of Fog, a song written by uh, Jesse Olson Bay, uh, using the words of Tilly Olson. Fog, white, wind, milk, night. Hood, wisps, trail, down drift, breath, spirals, breath, coils, blowing, veils, ribbons. Marvelous the way the fog Stands on the horizon Solid, soft, and ragged Glows as if From underwater Fog a uh, sample there of the song Fog by Jesse Olson Bay and lyrics by Tilly Olson. Uh, Now, Rebecca, I'd like to hear your poem. This is called Learning to Write. The dark shimmers in the orchard of the bottle trees. Night means to be a set of practice scales played over. There are two seasons in this orchard. One writes or doesn't. They are green and red and mostly blue glass, the bottle trees, and they are only still at noon or midnight. We are awake at both as often as not, listening to that far-off buzzing. There are no bees in the orchard of the bottle trees. What you hear are the knuckles of suicides knocking. Those we could not call back into their names. Your two Anne's, my mother's Margaret, Wolf, Ceylon. Benjamin. We do not know how to find those caught in the glass of the bottle trees, nor how to ever leave them. You would write me notes to find in the morning. I have been writing. It's 2 a.m., no, 3. But time with you is precious, so when you get here, please wake me. Rebecca, I don't know if you're one of those poets who would rather not talk about the poems and just let them speak for themselves? Or would you like to talk about that? Um, I was so struck 
by Jesse's picking up Tilly's writing practice. Writing practice and how people get themselves to write is so important to me, and it's actually something that I work on teaching people now. Um, and I wanted to write a piece that spoke to that. And so this piece, um, My Fog is the Bottle Trees, and the Bottle Trees is a reference to Jesse's amazing use of those bottles to keep his going. Um, and very much thinking about my relationship to Tilly and writing um, and what gets passed on. And uh, the last line is a note she wrote me towards the end of her life that I have on my refrigerator that I love. And it says again? I have been writing, it's 2 a.m., no 3, but time with you is precious, so when you get here, please wake me. <laughs> what about the suicides? In a number of places in the Blueys, Tilly writes about one of the Anns in her life who committed suicide. Um, there was another Ann in her life who actually, the day I was born, Tilly and that Ann came to the hospital to see my mother and they had stolen flowers from various yards on the way to the hospital to give to Julie. Um, and that Ann um, drank herself to death. Um, and so there was this scent. Those are Tilly's Anns. Oh, one of them must have been Anne Sexton. One of them was Anne Sexton. The poet. Um, and one of the things Tilly and I often, not often, but we had had a couple of conversations about what it means to love people who are suicidal and not be able to call them back. So the references um, are to a list of those people. Mm -hmm. Um. Tilly could have written her thoughts in journals, in bound journals. She chose to write them on these scraps of paper. And I want to make a facile leap from that to the actual work she produced and the way they have that kind of granular or mosaic quality we talked about earlier. You know, the fact that they collect these fragments of perception and experience and string them together uh, in a way that forces the reader or asks the reader to assemble them. And in that process make things whole. Do you think there's something to that? Did she write that way because that was an essential part of what she was after? You mean... Did she write on these scraps of paper because that was kind of integral to what she ultimately would produce? Or is it just, is that just a, like I say, a purely facile idea? <laughs> I think there were probably a lot of reasons she wrote on, a, on scraps of paper. And some of it was just grabbing something that was available. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And... I think her use, her careful use of language, the vernacular that she had copied down, the quotes she had collected, the putting things together in juxtaposition is an intentional creative strategy. Mm -hmm. um, one of the critics of, of Tilly's work talks about Requa and has this wonderful thing to say. Elaine Orr says about Requa that... Um, Olson insists that the brokenness is the condition that elicits human bondedness and that the story may await not so much Olson's finishing of it, but of a reader's response. Right. And I think that that's a really lovely way to think about the ways in which the work itself is calling the reader to fill in and complete and make their own um, connections and stories. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, any good writing 
uh, is going to, again, force the reader to do some work because that's the way in which it becomes real. <laughs> but also it's going to admit of multiple readings, you know, many, many different kinds of readings. And I'm sh her work supports all kinds of readings, you know. We all bring something, uh, a piece of it, you know, that's, that's essential. I think there's another piece to the Blueys, which is that for most of my mother's life, up until her late 40s, there was no time for writing. There was no space for writing. Um, I remember a particularly bad biographer kept asking me, well, where was your mother's desk? Where was her writing room? And I'm saying, there were six of us living in a two-bedroom house. What do you mean, where was her desk? You know, um, She didn't have a study. She didn't have an office. She didn't have journals. Um, although she loved notebooks. Oh, that woman loved little notebooks. <laughs> but when I was young, there was no money for those right. things. And I think this jotting down was her way of continuing to write no matter what. I have memories of her at um, PTA meetings with us kids who had gone in and we were there. I have the kids and parents and things. And all of a sudden, I see my mother taking little pieces of paper out of her pocket and jotting things down. And I always, of course, with the egotism of a seven or eight-year-old, presumed she was writing about me. And I would say, what did you write about me? And she'd say, no, no, not about you. And she'd put it back in her pocket. But I think the habit of writing wherever there was a space, of jotting it down, doing it on buses, doing it wherever she could, became the habit of getting the pump started, mm -hmm. keeping that alive in her. And then when it was a typewriter and paper and there was some space, I mean, the description that Rebecca just said of, you know, that she would put a piece of paper in before she went to bed uh, into the typewriter. So when she woke up in the middle of the night, she could sit mm -hmm. and type <laughs> what had come to her in her mm -hmm. dreams mm -hmm. or in her thinking. She was also, she had such a broad perspective she brought to her writing. I mean, one of the things cleaning out after she had died, there were boxes and boxes of newspaper clippings on all sorts of things where she'd read something that was important and she'd cut it out and was keeping it because it was an idea that mattered. And so it was that patchwork quilt in her mind of all this stuff coming together. And I, I think it became the way she kept herself writing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I was thinking that even after those years of necessity, uh, you know, had gone away, she continued that habit. Mm -hmm. And she could have all carried a journal around and jotted right. those things in that one place. Um, are those collected in an archive now? Where, where did they all go? <laughs> they are all at Stanford. My mom's papers are at Stanford uh, in the library. Some poor graduate student in 100 years <laughs> is going to have to look at those boxes and will run screaming out of the room. I don't know. I, I, um, like I say, <laughs> when I, when I uh, took care of her apartment for a couple of weeks, those little pieces were all over the place, and they were in shoeboxes. I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was really quite wonderful mm -hmm. to just chance on them. Um, you mentioned a bad biographer. I didn't want to be indiscreet, but I did want to ask about a biography that came out four years ago. Or is that like... Uh, let's see what I can do with it. I may ask you not to use so it. So is this Tilly's first biography since her death? There have been many books written about my mother's work, which have included biography. The only book that was written as a biography specifically was written by Panthea Reed, and it was written in the last years of my mother's life. Um, one Woman, Many Riddles. One Woman, Many Riddles. And that's the one you're talking about. I mean, um, I, I, I stumbled on it. Um, 
and uh, I saw that it wasn't all so flattering. Uh, it was vicious. And it, <laughs> you know, whether it was whether it was her design from the beginning or it was something she came to, uh, it was kind of bursting the bubble or taking you know uh, taking a poke at the Tilly Olson myth. How did that affect you guys? I mean, is that something you can handle and just say, well, you know, she was a complicated person? I was person. devastated by the book. Uh, Absolutely devastated. And the reason I'm devastated by it is that Panthea quotes all kinds of people who, when the book came out, called us, wrote, and said, wait a minute, she took that out of context, that was inaccurate. And the problem is that the people who knew my mother are dying or dead. I was devastated by the book. I thought it was cruel, and I thought it was really slanted in how it chose to portray uh, I was particularly furious that one of the things she claimed was that she had had unprecedented access to Tilly's daughters and putting it together, which implied that we supported the book. And also, we we supported everybody who wrote about my mother, anybody who wrote about my mother who contacted us. I, at least I always talked to, I mean, I shouldn't speak for my sisters, but I always talked to, sent material to, and her choosing to put that as part of her description of this book as if we supported it. Um, and it's heartbreaking to me because no one's around who can rewrite that. You know, the people she quoted are dead. There's no cleaning that up. And there's nothing we can do about it. She must have had flaws, though. She was human. Of course. Um, I mean, she had so many amazing gifts, but... I mean, uh, whenever I'm in the presence of someone I might be overawed by, <laughs> I find little flaws, you know. She was very much a human being. You know, she she could make you crazy as well as thrillingly happy. Um, she was a wonder, and uh, she was a power to be reckoned with. I mean, there was nothing about her that was wishy-washy, but she was incredibly kind and loving. Um and it's not that we didn't argue. Of course we argued. She was my mother. <laughs> you know? uh, she also had this great sense of humor. But she cared passionately about things. And so injustice infuriated her. And she didn't have a lot of tolerance for people who didn't care. <laughs> you know, uh, it, She was very hard on people who claimed uh, academic distance. The first time I ever heard the Dante quote about the hottest parts of hell are reserved for those who remain neutral in times of great moral crisis was my mother. Uh, I'll tell you one Tilly story, which you may or may not use, but it fits with what we're talking. I came home from school, third grade maybe, really pleased. I said, my teacher said this wonderful thing today. She said, I complained because I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. And my mother put her hands on her hips and said, and then I hope you complain twice as hard because both those things are lousy, neither should be allowed, and both should be taken care of. <laughs> but, you know, this is not a mom saying, oh, great, you've learned something wonderful today. Could I, I, have, I have something along those lines which you may or may not want to read, but it's another yeah. poem from the Jesse thing. Yeah. Um, so it's called Learning to Write. Two. <laughs> and this is a, another poem of yours that you wrote uh, in conjunction with the, uh, the CD of songs from your cousin Jesse. Yeah. Right? Okay. Learning to write, two. 
We do not get to choose our memories. They come on an accidental wind, but we can choose what order to tell them in. For example, I was seven when you gave me the Dictionary of Clichés. Having read something I had written, you thought it a necessary intervention. I was seven. Of course the trees sang when you walked by. You had named me poet at four. That postcard I had labored over, one tortured block letter word on each line, which you kept with you for the next 40 years. My first and best poem. My rose sweet grandma. I love you. I just want to thank both of you. Uh, it's been a great time talking to you. And a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. I am lost in my arrowing maze, stumbling days. I am drowned in a vast forgetting. I am washed by the waves, I am rocked I am beached on your infinite body I'm on a forced march from my country I'm in the middle of a bad fix I am sunk by the roadside By the way, Julie Olson Edwards will be leading a class on Tilly Olson's writing this coming November 13th and 20th. We'll put a link for more information on our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. And you can learn more about this CD, Makings, by Jesse Olson Bay, featuring the words of Tilly Olson at his website, JesseOlsonBay.com. And I am thrust back into the long ago. I am thrust into the new. I am struck by the sun, I am prism I'm in the white night of a storm I'm in a stone fetus trying to be born I am holding my hands up bleeding I am trembling, I am ravenous, I am receding I am ignorant, I am unspoken, I am resistless, I am yielded, I am closer, I am closer. And I am everywhere but in my grave. Everywhere but in my grave And I am everywhere but in my grave Everywhere but in my grave And I am everywhere but in my grave Everywhere but in my grave And I am everywhere but in my grave 
Everywhere but in my grave Everywhere but in my grave 